0: All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Echoes of Eden this evening, a little bit different venue for us in the worship center, Uh, kind of a a very big space for us uh, cozy folks here. Uh, But just a heads up until the roof gets officially uh, finished at the uh, chapel, which it has to begin before it can get finished. Uh, But you know how that goes. Uh, June 19th, and it would take two weeks. Right. Mm. All right, so, uh, so just plan on meeting in here uh, on Monday evenings until you hear otherwise, all right? So that's kind of uh, the plan there. Uh, so let's uh, get started with the blessing before the study of Torah. Then we'll talk about where we're at in the Torah and dive into the text. Let's pray. Baruch atah Adonai, henu meleko v'sivanu le'asok bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments, has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. All right, so this week takes us to a double portion, uh, and it is the final two portions of Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. Uh, first portion is known as Matot. Uh, and the second portion is masse. So this week the double portion is matot masse. As I said, it finishes out the book of Numbers, covers Numbers chapter 30 uh, through 36 through the end of the book, uh, and uh, it is the 42nd and 43rd division of the Torah's 54 divisions, so you can tell we're getting close to a conclusion, Uh, and next week we begin uh, the final book of the Torah, Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, Uh, and so we will finish out well tonight, Uh, kind of excited about tonight in some ways, uh, not as much material as far as length. But certainly one of our deeper teachings as far uh, as that goes. And I'm really trying to combine a lot of things we've been talking about uh, in the previous Times and Echoes of Eden, pulling together all of those things from the Hebraic toolbox. Uh, So this evening, we'll especially kind of deal with uh, numbers, gematria. Numbers aren't just numbers. Uh, We'll also deal with, as we've talked about, the times when uh, the Torah seems redundant, uh, how to deal with that redundancy. Uh, And we'll also, very importantly, uh, at the conclusion, uh, look at the fact that places are not just places. And so this week your handout is a full three pages in length. Uh, and So even if you're listening it to uh, this particular class on the podcast or you're following uh, on YouTube or listening to it, downloading the MP3, uh, make sure you go to the website and download the handout because you will want the additional two pages uh, for sure. And what I share with you on those two pages, uh, no joke, took me um, 17 years before my rabbi would give me that information. So you didn't have to go 17 years uh, of studying and proving yourself to be trusted with that information. Uh, Now, certainly, as we'll look at it later, uh, I don't expect you to gather and grasp everything that's on there. um, But it will get you started. And if you hang on to it, uh, it will most certainly prove worthwhile if you continue in your Torah studies. However, there is enough there. There is enough that you can grasp. Uh, to indeed join in in the journey through the wilderness and the journey that is life. Uh, so, Matot Masseh the final two portions of the book of Numbers, Bamid Bar. So what's going on in this week's double portion? Well, that first portion, as I said, named Matot, it actually means in English, Tribes. And it's found in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. And the second portion, uh, masseh means journeys. And that's found where that portion begins in Numbers chapter 33, verse 1. And so what's happening kind of in a, a Goodyear blimp, overarching view of this portion is Moses conveys some laws concerning the annulment of vows of the heads of the tribes of Israel. Uh, a war is raged against, waged against Midian for their role in trying to plot the destruction of Israel. Uh, you may recall, if you read last week's portion, Pincus, right, in the weeks before, Balak, uh, Balak uh, that there was this attempt to defeat the Israelites first through having uh, a prophet curse Israel, but every time he tried to curse Israel, he ended up blessing Israel. So he finally said, the only way you're going to get these people is through their morality. You're gonna, you know, the only way you're going to defeat these people is to get them to compromise their ethics and their standards, uh, attack them where it's going to hit them hard, and, and that is through their vices. Uh, and so it was a Moral destruction that they were attempting. Uh, And this is something that was often used in ancient warfare that I think we would do well today to kind of pay attention to. Uh, And that is the fact that there's more than one way to defeat a nation and to disassemble a nation and to disempower a nation. It's not just through tanks and bombs, it can be through their morality, it can be through how they view life and how they live their life life. That's why it's important uh, you pay attention to where certain apps come from and what those certain apps do where you think, oh, look, it's making my face look like a gorilla and all that and never thinking, oh, they're actually facially profiling me and and getting all the profile of my entire face and putting it in a database, right? Uh, So be alert. Uh, It's an age-old technique to dismember a society. Uh, and that's what the, the Midianites tried to do, uh, but it did not work because Pincus intervenes, and then they defeat the Midianites. Uh, the Torah then goes on to give a, a detailed account of the war spoils and how they were uh, to be allocated amongst the people, the warriors, the Levites, and the high priest. Then in the portion of the tribes of Reuben and Gad, later joined by the half-tribe of Manasseh, ask for lands east of the Jordan River as their portion of the promised land. They were uh, originally, when Moses divvied out the land, were uh, apportioned a different section, but they request this land east of the Jordan because they say it's prime pasture land for their cattle. Moses, at first, is angered by this request, But subsequently he agrees, but on the condition that Reuben, Gad, and this half-tribe of Manasseh, they first have to join and lead in Israel's conquest of the lands west of the Jordan. So Moses says, before you go east of the Jordan, you're not only going to help us take the lands west of the Jordan, uh, you're going to do that first, and then you can have the lands east of the Jordan. And then the 42 journeys and encampments of Israel are listed. So as the book of Numbers ends and the book of Deuteronomy is on the horizon, uh, we're coming not only to the end of this 40-some-odd-year journey in the wilderness, uh, but we're coming to the end of the life of Moses. Uh, And so the book of Deuteronomy, the whole book, only covers a little more than a month as far as its time on the calendar. Uh, And so Moses' death is right around the corner. He's already... named Joshua his successor. He is given a a show or display of transfer of power and authority. Uh, And because Moses is not allowed into the promised land, Joshua will be the one that will take them into the land. And as they are getting ready for that, Moses recounts uh, that over the 40 plus years, the 42 different locations or at least the 42 stops, that they made encampments where they set up the tabernacle, where they kind of uh, pitched their time for a while. Some very, very short, some a very, very long time. Uh, But all of that from the time of the Exodus until their final entry into the promised land uh, is listed. And the boundaries of the promised land uh, are given, Cities of refuge are designated as havens and places of exile for those who have committed inadvertent murder. And the daughters of Zelephad marry within their own tribe of Manasseh so that the estate which they inherit from their father could not pass to the province of another tribe. And so this is a pretty important story. We won't get to it this evening, but it is covered in the archives and as always, I encourage you to look at the archives. So that is an overview of all the ingredients that go on in Matot Masseh, the 42nd and 43rd division of the Torah. So now let's dive into the text. Let's look at first numbers chapter 31 verse 5 and there the text reads So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe 12,000 armed for war. So along with the 1,000 soldiers from each of the tribes each of the 12 tribes sends a thousand individuals in addition to these thousand soldiers that Moses sent to fight the war with Midian, he also sent Pincus, all right, Pincus, the one who has succeeded in stopping the plague that broke out as a result of Israel falling prey to the enticement of the women of Midian and Moab. Uh, again, that was described at the end of the Torah portion, Balach, a couple of weeks ago. But Pincus being sent to war confirms a statement made by the sages. So when the sages look not only at Pincus but several other places throughout the Torah, they developed kind of an axiom, uh, an adage, if you will, that I think is important in our life uh, as well and kind of can speak some truth to us. Uh, And that is the merit of a mitzvah goes primarily to the one who finishes it. And again, mitzvah is that Hebrew word that often gets translated as commandment, Uh, but it means so much more than commandment. It means a connection. It is something that God has created to connect heaven and earth so that by our physical action below and carrying out that physical action below, it connects us to him and it connects us to something bigger than ourselves and beyond this space and time. And so in some ways a mitzvah is kind of like a sacrament is in the church where you have this physical action Uh, Where you use physical substances, bread, wine, water, and so forth, uh, and you do physical things, but all the while you realize that all of that is really has a deeper spiritual connection and is affecting a spiritual transformation. That's a mitzvah. All right, so it's so much more than just a, a do this or a don't do that. And so when when the sages looked at the Torah, uh, they noticed this theme that the merit of a mitzvah goes primarily to the one not who starts it, but to the one who finishes it. And Pincus is a clue to that because it was Pincus who came and reminded Moses of what should be done to Zimri, who had publicly taken a Midianite princess, Kozbi Batzur, to cohabitate with her. Moses said that he should therefore be the one to carry it out, that Pincus should carry it out. And due to the actions of Pincus, not just his kind of starting it and getting it going, but due to the fact that he finished it with that great act and where God made that covenant of peace with him, the plague that was consuming the camp of Israel stopped. This idea is also discussed by the sages regarding how Joseph was buried in Israel. Uh, you may recall that when Joseph passed away in Egypt uh, before he passes away, he says that he wants his bones not to remain in, e- in Egypt, but that they when they leave Egypt, they would take his bones with them, and that he would be buried in his land. Those who in the Torah who buried. Uh, Joseph, are the ones given credit for taking him out of Egypt and burying him. Although, when we read the Torah, it was actually Moses who began the process. Moses is the one who got the bones of Joseph. Moses is the one that made sure the bones of Joseph traveled with them. But he was not the one who finished that mitzvah, that task. And since Moses did not enter the promised land, he cannot finish the mitzvah of burying Joseph. And those that did bury him received the merit. So again, we learn from this, the merit of a mitzvah goes to the one who finishes it. Now, this principle is easy to relate to because think about this. How many times do you begin a project or a task are a mitzvah, and fail to finish it. How many times do you make a commitment that you are going to read your Bible more, that you're going to be more active in study of Scripture, that you're going to have a better prayer life, that you're going to uh, acquire an accountability partner, that you are going to do something different in your family dynamic as far as something that would be beneficial for your children or for uh, your relationship with your spouse. How many times do you begin something with fervor, with great intention, but you do not finish it. You do not finish it. And of course, that can be attributed to a whole host of reasons, such as a loss of inspiration. You just kind of lose that initial fire that you had. Or it could be a loss of focus. Or maybe you just struggle with commitment. But this understanding also helps us understand what appears to be a redundancy In the scriptures. Uh, So another place where the sages derive this axiom that the merit of a mitzvah goes primarily to the one who finishes it goes all the way back in Genesis. So if we read this text from Genesis chapter 12 verse 6 uh, about Abraham coming to the land of Canaan which is the promised land which becomes the land of Israel. It says this, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had acquired and the souls they had acquired in Haran. And they went to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan. Now, did you catch that at the end? right? And they went to the land of Canaan and they came to the land of Canaan well, I don't know about you, but I assume if they went to the land of Canaan, that they came to the land of Canaan, right? But the Torah never wastes space. It never just duplicates itself. And so anytime you see something like what seems to be a redundancy, the Torah is actually trying to teach you a deeper truth. And so, If the verse says they went to go to the land of Canaan, why does it also say, and they came to the land of Canaan? This is to acknowledge the fact that just because they set out to go to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, to the land of Israel, there was no guarantee that they would actually follow through or that they would succeed. There is a statement in the Talmud that says, everything goes after the beginning. Whereas another place in the Talmud says, everything goes after the end. Of course, both of these statements are true depending on the frame of reference. That is, everything is at the beginning and that's the most important or everything is about how you finish and that's the most important. And as it is whenever you're dealing with Hebraic thought, and when you seem to have contradictory statements, well, which is it? Is it most important at the beginning or more important at the end? The answer is yes, but what's your frame of reference? If you're at the beginning, then guess what I'm going to tell you as the leader and as the pep rally leader? Oh, the beginning's the most important, because at that juncture in time, it is the most important, because if we don't get started, we certainly can't finish. But after we've been on the journey and we've already done the beginning part, I as your cheerleader, I as your leader have to tell you, it isn't about how you start, it's about how you finish. Right, And that would be an equally true statement at that juncture in time, particularly if people are growing weak or weary or faint-hearted or losing interest or running out of gas, uh, not uh, having the right focus, uh, beginning to you know go other places. Then I would say, hey, it doesn't matter how we started. It doesn't matter how strong you were at the beginning. We've got to finish this. And so both are true. And it relates to one of the tools that is in your toolbox comes from a book called the Sefer Yetzirah. The Sefer Yetzirah is probably the oldest religious book we have on planet Earth outside of the Bible. The Sefer Yetzirah, is its it's reputation is, is that none other than Abraham the patriarch wrote it. Whether that's true or not, I'll let you sort that out, but that is the rumor of it. Uh, But it's a book that has existed as long as people have talked about books. You find an old book and it'll quote the Sefer Yetzirah, which means that existed before that book. And no matter how far back we go, they keep quoting the Sefer Yetzirah. And this is the tool that's in your toolbox that kind of brings all of this together Right. So Hebraic thought is about having a thesis and an antithesis and then finding the synthesis. Is the most important thing the beginning or is the most important thing the end? Well, the tool is this. The end is in the beginning, and the beginning is in the end. It's a very deep statement worthy of, at some time, A good five minutes of yourself in a quiet room contemplating all the ways that can be understood. The end is in the beginning. So how it ends is already in the beginning. And by the way, you see this stuff in the Bible. What's in the beginning? Oh, there's this thing called the tree of life. Go 65 more books to the end of the Bible, book of Revelation. When it's all said and done, guess what's sitting there nice and pretty? The tree of life. The end is in the beginning. And likewise, the beginning is in the end. From this we can learn that an unfinished mitzvah is is not truly called a mitzvah and that we should finish something with the same enthusiasm with which we began it. The end is in the beginning. The beginning is in the end. Right? And so that helps us even all the way back in Genesis twelve six with that redundancy. They began by going out to Canaan, but they also completed that task. They came into the land of Canaan. Okay. All right. Now, on your handout, it's important. I tried to kind of put some of the numbers and different things there. But we're going to do a deep dive, somewhat deep dive, into the 42 destinations of the wilderness journey. And when we get to our mindfulness section, we'll also be doing kind of the same thing, focusing that on... 42 destinations. And the reason I want to do this is because, in a fractal way, in a kind of microcosm way, uh, I don't know, how many of you do I have any Simpson fans out there? The Simpsons? Anybody like The Simpsons? Or am I just revealing my Gen X kind of generation? Right? Probably so. Well, in one episode of The Simpsons, and Particularly, I kind of find it amusing because Lisa, the really smart genius daughter, uh, has a a moment where she says, oh my goodness, I've invented Lutherans. Uh, And so that obviously uh, always got us Lutheran seminarians excited and so forth. So what happens is Lisa, maybe you remember you could buy um, monkeys in a barrel, little like fish like things, right? And you put them in and you can watch these things kind of grow. Well, she basically creates a miniature universe with like cultures and different things like that. But over time, it evolves, right? And they develop a culture. And and then, of course, there's uh, one nailing a thing to the cathedral door and so forth. And she's created Lutherans. But they kind of relive the history of the world. So she has like the history of the world in a microcosm and she can get her a little t- microscope and and kind of see what century they're in and all of that these 42 journeys are that for your life not life in general not life in general though that though that for sure but your life particular right? your life the blueprint of your life are these 42 Journeys. In other words, it's the roadmap you follow in life. And so it's kind of like you'll be able to, once you really get a hold of them, to find out where you're at. And if you feel stuck, like sometimes they did when they encamped and they didn't get to leave, and sometimes they went up, from that, which meant they had elevated. Other times they had to go down, which meant they had descended spiritually. Sometimes they went across, right? Pay attention to all of those kind of directions. Are they going up? Are they going down? Are they going across? Are they going over? Are they going under? Because that's letting you know something about their journey. But the names of the actual places, when you translate the name, so like Macomb, Well, what if Macomb really meant something? Well, all of these 42 locations are Hebrew words, are combinations of Hebrew words, or acronyms of Hebrew words that mean something, that kind of locate where you could be in life. And then you can read that particular destination in that description while they're at that destination, and you can receive insight into how you can move to the next stop in your journey to the promised land and to be fully free and broken from Egypt and the slave mentality and the negativity mentality and the chaos mentality. But these are the 42 things you've got to work through in order to make it from a spiritual or a mental clarity perspective to the promised land. And so it's very, very important, and it's very, very practical. The temptation would be, wow, he's just about to list 42 places that I can't even pronounce. Like, boring Let's just read in the Bible in a year. Let's just skip past all of that. I don't need to know Ramses and Sukkot and all of these names of these cities. Just bloop, bloop, and find where the text kind of begins a narrative again. But you will have bypassed your life. You will have bypassed your life. And so for that reason, I want to do a deep dive that you, because I trust, you know, you guys can either buy your own commentaries Or you can get online and get your own commentaries. I want to give you stuff that you're really not going to find there. You're just not. And again, that took me 17 years to get that I give you tonight as a gift. So the beginning of the portion of Massé, the last portion of the book of Numbers, enumerates 42 encampments, our stops, our locations along Israel's 40-some-odd year wandering of the wilderness, the desert. The journeys to these 42 stops are introduced with these words from Numbers chapter 33, verse 2. And Moses wrote their going forth according to their journeys at the command of God. And these were their journeys according to their going forth. Did you catch it? Did you catch the redundancy? All right? So we're going to tonight explore some, some of the redundancy, why it's there and what we can mine from it. Okay? And as I said, I tried to put some of it on your handout for you so you wouldn't have to try to always keep up with writing it down. Um, And and then we'll also at the end look at that two page handout that's uh, attached to the regular handout this week. So, on close inspection, the words going forth and journeys found in the first half of the verse did you catch it? It doesn't just appear in the second half, but did you catch it? What's going on there? It's in the reverse order. You got to pay attention to all that kind of stuff. See, when we say things like the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, like we really mean it. We really mean it to the point of the order of the words matter. It's not just being stylish or going, I can't say it exactly the same, so I'll try to mix it up a little bit for, you know, Mrs. Smith so that she'll give me a better grade on my paper, right? It's intentional, all right? Going forth in journeys found in the first half of the verse appear in the opposite order in the second half of the verse. This is related to the two types of light that we've talked about in previous classes and echoes. The or yashar, the straight light, that is the light descending from above to below. And the or kozer, the returning light, the ascending light from below to above. The soul throughout the Torah tradition is associated with light. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, the candle of God is the soul of man. Thus, the first half of the above verse, which states their going forth according to their journeys, is to be interpreted as the soul, a manifestation of straight light coming from its heavenly source, its heavenly above abode, in order to descend into this world. The second half of the verse, and these were their journeys according to their going forth, is the returning light the soul returning with its light after its sojourn in this world back to its heavenly abode above. This follows the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov that these 42 journeys are archetypal. Remember, we throughout echoes have been looking at the Torah as archetypal. That these 42 encampments are archetypal And they symbolize the journey every soul experiences. So this is the journey of your soul in this world. If that doesn't make you interested in them, I don't know what will. And so now I want to show you, I think it's fascinating, probably because I have a degree in theoretical mathematics, but nonetheless, it's fascinating. Because remember... Hebrew is an alphanumeric language. Letters are numbers, numbers are letters, words equal totals, and so forth. The verse that is quoted above, Numbers chapter 33, verse 2, is the 2,336th verse in the Torah. So if you've been reading along in Echoes of Eden all along, When you came to this verse, you have read 2,336 verses of the Bible. Now, this is interesting because 2,336 is the product of multiplying 73 times 32. And you're like, big deal. Oh, it's a really big deal. Because 73 is a really big deal, and 32 is a really big deal. And so when they're multiplied, that makes an extra big deal. The word for wisdom in Hebrew is Hochma, And when you add up the letters in Hochma, it equals 73. And the Hebrew word for heart is Lave, And when you add up the letters for Lave, which is lamed, Bait, A 30 and a 2, it's 32. Therefore, 2,336 is 73 times 32. It's a multiplication of wisdom and heart. And so we can comprehend the meaning of a person's journey in this world as an ongoing journey to integrate the wisdom of God as revealed in the Torah into our heart and mind. That that's what the journey is all about. The integration of God's wisdom into our heart. 73 times 32. The connection between 73 and 32 is also seen in the opening statement of that book, Sefer Yetzirah, that I told you about. The most ancient of all Jewish texts outside of the Bible. The opening words are this. God created the world through 32 pathways of wisdom, which is 73, through 32 of 73. That's how God created the world for us. And in the morning prayer service, uh, it's a prayer book called the Siddur. It is the prayer book that was kind of established by Ezra of the book of Ezra in your Bible, uh, after the second temple, when they rebuilt the destroyed first temple and they were rebuilding the second temple, uh, Ezra compiled the order of service for the morning prayers, Ezra and the men of the great assembly. And that prayer service is still prayed every morning um, by the likes of yours truly and individuals throughout the world. And in that prayer service, it mentions that God renews perpetually the work of creation and everything that God has made, he has done it with wisdom, with chokmah. A numerical gem reveals that when you take the very first word of the Bible in Hebrew, which is bereshit, and you spell it a certain way, and I'm going it's on your sheet, when you spell it like B, B B-R, B-R-A, B-R-A-S-H, B-R-A-S-H-I, B-R-A-S-H-I-T, Bereshit. When you spell it that way, the very first word of the Torah, and you add up its letters, guess what it equals? 2,336. This mathematical phenomenon alludes to the idea that each and every person's journey in this world is encoded in the primordial beginning of creation itself. So that as creation is going on, as three-dimensional space and time is being created, the journey your soul will make in your skin suit has been mapped out because of this 2,336 connection. And so it's by learning Torah that we get in touch with the wisdom of the Creator as it's been translated into a very practical roadmap on how to navigate our journey in this world the best way possible, not only as uh, an entity or a a collection or a, a nation or a world, but as an individual. Now, the first verse in the Torah, when you add up all of those letters, it equals 2701, which is the triangle of 73, which is the triangle of Chokmah. What do I mean by that? A triangle number is the sum of all the numbers from one to that number. So for example, the triangle of four is ten. One plus two plus three plus four equals ten. And that would form a triangle if you one, two, three, four. Right. It would form. So another example, the triangle of seven is twenty-eight. One plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six plus seven, equals 28. If we do that with 73, which is chokmah, which is wisdom, it equals the first verse of Genesis. And the Targums, remember our friend the Targum? It translates the verse first of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, not as, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Instead, the Targum, which is a paraphrase, which is kind of the study Bible of Jesus, it was the paraphrase used in the synagogue before the first century and through the first century. It translates Genesis 1-1 this way. With wisdom, God created the heavens and the earth. And now you know how they did that. Now you know how they did that. And so they connect wisdom with the very first uh, verse of Genesis. And as mentioned, every day in the morning prayers, the following is recited. Everything you've made, you've made with wisdom, Hokma." Today, beyond understanding the fabric of the universe as particles or force fields, Modern physics teaches that everything is a manifestation of coded information. That's why I love The Matrix. Don't have any Simpsons fans in here, any Matrix fans in here? Man, I just have bad taste, I suppose. And The Matrix, when he enters into The Matrix, right? he doesn't see you as you he sees you as zeros and ones or he sees the shapes of, of like this building he sees what it's really made of the 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 structure of it and the encoding of it And that's how modern physics sees reality through not only molecules, but the the subatomic level, not only the proton, the neutron, and electron, but the, the, the neutrinos and even below that and even below that are encoding and making up what we see. And what we're finding is that's how the Torah is written. That the letters on the page are like molecules and underneath them are atoms and underneath them are protons and neutrons and electrons and underneath them is another structure and another structure. This information is in fact the signature of the wisdom of the creator in every point of time and space. The soul comes down to this world in order to elevate itself even more than if it would have remained in the celestial realms. In other words, you were put here to do work to do soul work. And when we don't do our soul work, our soul is very unsatisfied and it manifests itself in different ways to try to get our attention through depression or through anger or through aggravation or through short tempers or through... Uh, distraction or through procrastination or through boredom. It's doing something to try to say, I am not being satisfied. I am not doing what I was put on this earth to do. And I'm going to make you a miserable human being until you get busy doing what you're supposed to be doing. We put on this world to do soul work, to go through these 42 encampments so that we can inherit the promised land. And the journeys of this world are not always easy. And many times they're filled with pain and disappointment and frustration and suffering and confusion, just as the encampments throughout the book of Exodus through Numbers were filled with all of those things. But yet, when the soul can lift itself above the downward pull of the physical material gravity, the lessons that it learns and the progress that it makes has no limit. So combining wisdom, Hokma, 73, and heart, lave, 32, intellect and emotion, descending light and ascending light, this is the challenge of life. Divine wisdom is everywhere. Realizing this and integrating it fully is honing in on the heart of the matter. It's the wisdom of being inside life itself. So now I want us to be mindful of Massey. Talk more about these 42 journeys, keep diving deep. And then I'll briefly introduce you to that chart to set you on your way. I can't do the chart for you. I may be in, you know, Upsilanti, and you may be in Ann Arbor, or you may be all the way up in Anchorage and I'm down in Tallahassee. I'm not where you are at probably. Maybe, but probably not. I can't do the work for you. I can give you the tool. And I can give you a little bit of instruction on how to use the tool. But then, you got to use the tool. So Masé, as I said, outlines the 42 stops along the way of our wilderness journey. When we're reading from Exodus to the end of Numbers, we're not just reading about the Israelites leaving Egypt and coming to the promised land. We are reading about our journey in the wilderness. Sometimes, many times in fact, I think of my life as one long, interesting journey. Massey reminds me that every journey takes place in stages. Sometimes we call them seasons, but here we're going to use the metaphor of stages. And each stage, each season, carries its own distinct blessings to be unwrapped, to be savored. Its own distinct messages to be gleaned and digested. Its own unique set of experiences that are only for that encampment that are only for that time, that are only for that season, not for your next stop. Because if you bring it back in your next stop, then you're not at your next stop anymore. You're back to where you left. This gets into the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vanity, it says. No, everything is hevel in Hebrew. Everything is vapor. It exists for a time. Some longer than others, some much shorter than others. But once you learn its lessons, once you savor its flavor, once you experience what it is you are to be experienced, you have to go to the next stage or you don't go to the next stage. The word must say really refers to the setting forths, right? That setting forth that we do. As each stage of journey comes to an end, as each season comes to an end, we pull up our stakes and we move on. But some of us don't like to pull up our stakes and move on. Even when that friend who has helped me so much, has enlightened me. I couldn't have survived these three years without. Now is clearly no longer my friend, clearly no longer wants anything to do with me, but I'm going to cling on it, and I am going to make this work no matter what. No. Pull up the stakes and go. That encampment is done. But that's tough to do sometimes. It's very hard to do. And it's very easy to get stuck in your journey. But if you get stuck, you don't make it to the promised land. You don't make it to the freedom of consciousness that God has designed for us. We pull up our stakes. We move on. We initiate a new adventure. We go to the next city At each stage of the journey, I become aware of my own transformation. I'm never the same adventurer who set forth the last time. Forty-two stops or stages along the Israelites' path are enumerated and named in this week's portion. And each stopping point on the journey holds a blessing for us. Again, the Baal Shem Tov reminds us, and I quote, Whatever happened to the people as a whole will happen to each one of you individually. All the 42 journeys of the children of Israel will occur to each person between the time that they are born and the time that they die. We recount the itinerary of our wanderings in order to receive the lessons and the blessings and the transformation that each stage or season of the journey has. As we become aware of the significance of each stage, we receive its benefit. It's our awareness. It's our appreciation. It's our gratitude that transforms the story into blessing. It's also important to remember at each stage of our journey that we will encounter some obstacle, or some kind of resistance. That is the sign that you are on a path. And it's probably the right path. When you meet the obstacle and you can name it. You, when you can name the obstacle or that what is causing you resistance. You are so close to a breakthrough and so close to leaving that spot. Each encampment has its obstacle has its resistance. However annoying, however difficult, however devastating that obstacle or resistance is, its presence can call forth a particular and very peculiar power that is already within you, that's already within your soul. It's wanting to be exercised. The way in which the obstacle compels us to transform demonstrates the exact transformation that our soul needs for growth at that moment. In fact, the potentials that lie buried within us often require an appropriate challenge in order for it to be released and manifested. It is more than a strange coincidence that one of the unpronounceable names of God that can dissolve obstacles in our lives that it has 42 letters. It's one of the great things I'm giving to you this evening that, again, took me 17 years to be able to receive. Based on the first 42 letters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and following, Based on those 42 first letters, there is a 42-letter name of God. Thankfully, no one in their right mind will ever try to pronounce a 42-letter name, so we don't have to hear really bad songs that mispronounce the name of God, this name of God. But that's why there's 42 stops, because it's exercising the divine image that's within you. The divine image that's within you and that has that power is this 42-letter name. And so each stop, you are manifesting a letter of that name. And more precisely, the energy of the letter of that name. And so God's name is really not a name. It's an equation. So... Probably most are familiar with the Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Well, that has vowels, has a vowel and some consonants. Can you please pronounce that? It's got letters. What's the problem? Is it apt? Well, is it ah ba ba Like, what is it? And you'd be like, you're being stupid. It's not a name. It's an equation. Oh, what's an equation do? Oh, it helps you solve problems. It manifests a universal law. The name of God is not about pronouncing it. It's so not about pronouncing it. It really isn't anything about pronouncing it. It's an equation so that when it's put together and different letters form different names, it's revealing certain aspects, actual, actual natural laws and ways things work out in this universe, and it's allowing you to tap into it. It's like if I have a right triangle and I know two sides, I can find the third side. Am I magic? No, I'm not magic. Now, to someone who doesn't know math, perhaps I could pull it off as mad. Oh, that side's 3 and that side's 4. That side is this, right? You know, that side's 5. 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 25 square root 5. Wow, they measure it. How did you know that? Yeah, draw another triangle and give me two sides. Give me two different sides and I'll tell you the other side i magic. No, you're not magic. You understand that equation is revealing a fundamental law in our universe. And then we don't just have that one, right? We've got the quadratic equation. We've got all kinds of differential equations. We've got equations galore. The name of God operates like an equation. In each of these spots... You're tapping into part of that equation. You're getting to plug in the information into that equation so that when you finish the journey, you will have fully experienced your creator in his fullness. And along the way, as you're using this and figuring this out, it will seem like magic's happening. But it isn't magic. It's just the power of God. And the power of transformation when you roll up your sleeves and you get busy on soul work. Rabbi Nakunia ben Hakana lived in the second half of the first century. Almost contemporary with Jesus. He wrote a special prayer with these 42 words with the initials of which compromise the 42-letter name. So he wrote a 42-word prayer where the first letter of each of the 42 words is the 42-letter divine name. It's called the Anabakoak. The first line is Anabakoak Godulat Yaminka Tatir Zerah. Aleph, Beit, Gimel Yud, Tav, Zadi literally means, please with the strength of your right hand, untie the tangled, the knotted up. Because Rabbi Nakunia wanted to be able to pronounce the unpronounceable. He wanted to call out and call forth the reality of the whole in order to deal with the stubborn tangles that have a tendency to keep us stuck. The anabokoach is a prayer I pray, I don't know if I could even count the number of times a day I pray that prayer. And we move through our obstacles by knowing them in the context of our life's journey. The spiritual challenge of Massey lies in seeing the big picture, even as we are stopped along the way by seemingly insurmountable resistances or difficulties. Those impossible challenges that we face represent the work of our soul's growth. Understanding that the obstacles are the point. See, we want to move around the obstacle, we want to eliminate the obstacle. The obstacle is the point. Untying the knot is the point. Because the knot is the knot that is in your soul, in your consciousness. Don't move around it. Do the work to untie it. A woman tells the story of her divorce. She says that at the time of her divorce years ago, the pain of her broken heart seemed unbearable. Her tears filled up every crevice of her being and overflowed until she could barely imagine ever feeling happy or whole again. At some point, a small wise voice spoke inside of her and said, in a year, it'll be different. In a year, you'll feel fine. Maybe even a little more than fine. And she believed that voice, and she embraced that promise. And then she took a moment to envision herself a year from that time being a person filled with joy and purpose and meaning. And then she saw the year ahead during which she knew she would be doing a lot of hard work and a lot of grieving and a lot of healing and a lot of crying, not only from the divorce, but a whole lot of other losses that she had suffered. Can I just skip this year? She sometimes would whine, thankfully only to hear herself say, No, you can't skip it. It's the point. We learn from Massey that every stage is essential to the journey. There are no shortcuts, there are no ways to skip over the challenges. And even what seem like mistakes and dead ends and wrong turns along the way actually provide us with the necessary raw ingredients for wisdom, for chokmah. And those ingredients have to be prepared with self-compassion, unwavering intention, cooked with patience and humility, and sometimes served with a side of a sense of humor. So take that handout that has the 42 locations and don't be Westerners and think that you have to progress in this sequence. You don't. Maybe at some point you will. Maybe you'll get on a roll and Fine. Release yourself from the burden of thinking you're starting at Ramses and then moving to Sukkot and Etom and so forth and so on. Yes, that's what they did in the scriptures. But you may be taking a different path. You will be hitting these same locations. But don't restrict yourself to this flow. But I will explain the chart. So, looking at the page. By the way, I'm just letting you know this handout is gold. I'm telling you, it's pure gold. In the left column, it says the letter of the Anabakoach. The letter of the 42 name. So, there are 42 of them if you count them. And they're in groups of six, which is by design. So, there's six there are seven sets of six. So let's break down the first one for you. The first letter of the divine name, the 42-letter name, is Aleph. And there it's displayed for you. And Aleph has its own energy. That's a whole year-long class just on letters that we could do what are, what energies behind them. Because remember... How did God create the heavens and the earth and the universe? Speaking. Words. What make up words? Letters. They're equations. They're building blocks. They're atoms. They're molecules. And when you put them together, they make structures. When you got two H's and an O, you've got water. Is that magic? Is it magic? No, it's not magic. But if you don't know anything about science, I might be able to make you think I'm magic when I combine two hydrogens to one part oxygen and poof, there's a liquid there. I've created water. No. Same with these letters. So, letter olive. The first encampment is Ramses. Comes from the word Ra Ramases which is about separating the good from the bad, going out of our negative environments. So if you find yourself stuck or where you can name the obstacle, the resistance, as I'm in a highly negative environment and you need to get out of it, you're in Ramesses. You're in Ramses. So you would think about the Aleph, and you would read that portion of Scripture about encamping there, and that's where you would begin to dive into. And because in the, you have now named the obstacle, now that you know the opponent, you will have the tools to overcome it and continue on the journey. So the second one is a, a letter of Bet. Even though the first three go in the order of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, it isn't the rest. The letter Bet, the second encampment in the scriptures, is Sukkot. This means entering the shade of the light, protection, and certainty. Gimel, the place is Edom. It's an acronym for Al-Tirah Mi-Pachad. Removing fear. Only having a fear of disconnecting from the light, from God. So maybe you're in a place where fear really drives you. Fear really dictates your decisions. Uh, Fear is overwhelming for you. This is the place where you learn fear is a liar. And fear is of the enemy. The only thing you really should fear is disconnecting from the source of everything. Fear only Hashem. Fear only the Lord. Fear nothing else. Now, some of these explanations are kind of in-depth. They're my shorthand. I don't expect you to know what all of the things mean there. Um, but notice if you go down two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. 4, 6, 8, 10, 12... 14, yeah, about 15, to Ritma. How long were they in Ritma? It's a 40-year journey. How long were they in Ritma? What's it say there? 38 years. They had a lot of work there. You may not have to spend them, but you may spend 90% of your time somewhere else. Um, Lashana Ra, that's speaking negatively, uh, gossiping, slander, desiring the harm for people, wishing the downfall of people, celebrating when bad things happen to people you don't like. That's a toughie, isn't it? Easy to see why it took them 38 years. So that is the journeys. So you have what it connects to in the name of God. You have the name. And then you have a meaning of that name. Now, you may look at it and go, man, I'm all over the place. Then pick one. Pick one. And get to work at it. We will close there. As I said, it was a deep one this evening. But very, very important. Very important. We will meet in the worship center next week as we begin Sefer Devarim. Let's close with the blessing. Baruch Atta Adonai noten hatorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift of the Torah. Amen. Shalom and selah. Go in peace.